The economy is getting back underway, and with it, the world of pro sports. Stay ahead of the curve with the unparalleled tools of two world-class news desks covering developments across finance, economics, technology, and sports. Subscribe to Bloomberg.com, and if you're not already a subscriber to The Athletic for a limited time, receive a complimentary subscription to The Athletic. Go to Bloomberg.com slash subscribe to sign up today. Welcome to the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. It is Sunday, August 23rd, week 6 of the 2020 Fantasy Baseball waiver season. Derek Van Riper here with Michael Beller as we are each and every Sunday and it is another big week of players to bid on. I thought last week was Fabapalooza, Beller. I think this might finally be the last hurrah of prospect call-ups for the most part, but I'm excited to have a lot of fun players to talk about for probably the third, maybe even the fourth week in a row. Yeah, it's been almost the entire season, right, that we've had these uh, pretty strong fab weeks. We were talking right before we started getting going here. We've got this and four more uh, uh, fab shows left to talk about. So uh, we're really already at the uh, tail end of the fab season. And I think you're right. Uh, this is probably the last big wave. First of all, what would teams be waiting for? Secondly, after this week, we've seen so many of the big prospects come up that there just really aren't that many, realistically, that could be on the way. So I think this is going to be another big week. I would bet on this being the biggest remaining week of fab. Obviously, there could be injuries. We still have a potential uh, week based on the MLB trade deadline coming up, but I would bet that this is the last huge week of uh, of fab run that we see this season. If you have it, spend it because the quality of the players can really only go down from here and injuries might continue to create new opportunities, but we're not going to be talking about elite prospects getting those opportunities. I think we've now crossed the point in the season where teams are no longer worried about Super 2 considerations. Obviously, service time was no longer an issue as far as preserving the extra year and still calling a player up this year just like six days into this season. So that's been gone for a few weeks. Uh, But now it's a question of, for guys that haven't been called up, why would you bring them up now and not just delay them a couple of weeks in 2021 and get the extra year from next season? Like That's probably the decision that most teams are, are thinking about at this point. But let's start with pitching because pitching is loaded this weekend. If you need starting pitching, there's actually a lot out there. We'll start with the two Tigers, Casey Mize and Tarek Skubal. I think if you look at the entire group of pitchers, they're definitely not locked in as one and two in terms of how much you're going to bid or how you prioritize them in leagues where they're both available. I was surprised to see, uh, looking at the NFBC main event ownership rates, that Casey Mize was still rostered in 80% of leagues going into this week. Scooble was rostered, I think, in less than 10%. I just would have figured with the strikeout potential that Scooble brought to the table, that rate would have been higher, and Mize's rate probably would have been lower since they seemed like they were on the same timetable. But getting a chance to look at what they did in their respective debuts, I think it's clearer now than it was even prior to this week You know why Casey Mize was a 1-1 overall pick, why he's been the more highly regarded prospect to this point in their respective careers, despite the fact that Skubal's been very impressive and is definitely every bit a successful later round draft pick and development story for the Tigers so far. With Casey Mize... We saw probably six different pitches in that debut, and he commands them really well. And I think the question you always have to ask yourself with young pitchers, this is one that Eno put out, I think, on Rates and Barrels on Tuesdays, do you want stuff or do you want command when you can't have them both at the same time? Like, I think when you watch Scooble, you can see the stuff will be good. The command is just not quite as far along yet. With Mize, I think he's got better stuff than maybe people were giving him credit for. But the fact that he commands all those pitches pretty well, that gives him a chance to have a pretty nice floor from the jump. So when you're chasing pitching at this time of year, does your philosophy change based on categorical needs at all, right? If you're lagging in strikeouts, are you more likely to take the chance on Scooble knowing that the bid to win him is probably going to be a lot smaller? Yeah, I think that that's something that can factor in. I think no matter young pitcher, old pitcher, mid of the career pitcher, I think no matter who it is, you want command over stuff if you're only going to have one. And I think that yeah, I was guilty when these guys first came up uh, last week. We were talking about them from this same sort of vantage point, and I was guilty of falling in love 
with Scooble's stuff over Mize's overall picture. And I really think that even if I needed strikeouts more, I'm more willing to trust Mize right now just because I think that command is going to lead to him pitching more, getting more uh, getting more innings, getting more volume. And I think that the volume that he is going to get over Scooble can make up for whatever you know per inning, per batter strikeout upside that Scooble has over him. Obviously, as you said, based on those ownership rates, Scooble's probably going to be a little bit more available to you than Mize. In general, you have to assume that uh, more people are going to have an opportunity to get Scooble than Mize. If both of them are out there for me, I would go with Casey Mize as my primary guy. And if both of them were out there, I would make my bid higher for Mize too, right? It's not a, I'll bid the same, I'm comfortable spending 10% of my budget on a pitcher. So I'll just put 10% bids on and make sure Mize is prioritized. I'd be a little bit more comfortable spending more money on Mize just because I think right now, even though it's just one start, I feel pretty comfortable saying that he is the better pitcher, period, uh, than Scooble is at this point of their very, very, very early careers. Yeah, I don't think, I don't think you're going to get a whole lot of arguments to the contrary at this point, but I do think in my mind, they were closer together before I saw them pitch in the big leagues and realizing it's only one start. Scooble could come out on Sunday, look a lot better, and push those bids up a little bit too. But I think with Mize, in terms of a high-end bid, if we're looking at a 15-team league, I had him at a 10 to 15% of a full-budget sort of bid, so 150 out of 1,000. It might take a little bit more than that. I mean, this is where knowing your league is going to be really important. How aggressive are the people in your league with prospects? And what have people been bidding so far this year? I think the challenge of 2020 has been having more than double the fab budget per number of weeks. And people have been generally very aggressive, but then it seems like a lot of times the runner-up bids are nowhere close to the top bids, which doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, It's almost just like people are being more patient than they should be with players in this shortened season, so they're not bidding as aggressively in terms of the volume of players, but when they do bid, they're throwing huge numbers in. And I don't think it's easy to predict what the room is going to do, even when you have five or six runs of fab already to look back at. So what's your top number on Mize in leagues where he's available? Is he 150? Is he closer to 200? Do you go higher than that? Like, Where do you kind of cut it off? Yeah, I think 15% of my remaining budget is something I'd be pretty comfortable doing. And then if I was pitcher needy, I would be going. I would be willing to go even higher than that. As we said right off the jump here, this is probably going to be the last big fab week that we have this season. I mean, there is a very, very good chance that Casey Mize is the best pitcher you can get off fab the rest of the season. In fact, I would probably bet on that being the truth. I would bet that there is no pitcher from next week forward who is a better pitcher, a better fantasy bet than Casey Mize. So that's really the way to me you have to think about it. I think about it more in that way than I do about what I necessarily need or what my league mates are going to do, what sort of bid they're going to put in on them. I think I look at this and say, Casey Mize, is he the best pitcher who is going to be available to me in a fab context? And if he is, I need to go get him, even if it feels as though his, quote, you know, market value in the fab world is at 15%. If I feel I need to spend 20% to get him because of what he is shown, because of what his pedigree is, I think I'm comfortable doing that. Now, I think the interesting thing about Mize, too, with that pitch mix, he can fully achieve what I've heard Eno describe as the banana peel effect, where all of your pitches work together, and if you were to throw them like in a pitching ninja gif, you'd get four different directions. You'd, you'd be able to get a ball that runs in on lefties, you'd get a ball that drops in on righties, you get a ball that goes down and away on righties, and you get a ball with some ride or some run that at least that gets up, up to the top right part of the strike zone, right? Like, he has that. And the splitter is an amazing pitch. Watching Casey Mize throw that... I was looking at the baseball savant numbers for that. It's got 38.7 inches of drop, which is just insane. 18% more than league average for that pitch league-wide. I think that's going to be his bread-and-butter pitch when it comes to getting whiffs. But again, he's going to have hitters guessing up there a lot because that arsenal is just that deep. Now, the big question here with this group of pitchers coming up, it's not just my, it's not just Scooble. Sixto Sanchez debuted on Saturday, and Tristan McKenzie debuted on Saturday. And when I put the column up on Saturday, when I sent that over to Nando, it was before Sanchez and McKenzie had pitched. And my concern with Tristan McKenzie, and he looked fantastic in his debut against the Tigers, is that we really don't know what Cleveland is going to do with Zach Plezak and Mike Clevenger. I think you could safely say McKenzie 
brings a lot more to the table than Adam Plutko, who was knocked around by the Tigers on Friday. I think that's always been pretty obvious. I think the other wrinkle with McKenzie is just he hasn't pitched a lot the last two seasons. He didn't pitch at all in 2019 with lat and chest injuries. But everywhere he's pitched, and he's been young for the level when he's been there, he's been great, including in 2018, a 268 ERA and a whip of one in 16 starts with the Akron Rubber Ducks. So great numbers at A, swing and miss stuff. Doesn't have the build of a traditional starter, but certainly passed the eye test and put up amazing numbers that first time out. So I guess I want to ask you, what is your read on this Cleveland situation? Are they going to continue to go without Plezak and Clevenger? Are they realistically going to be traded? We talked trade with Fred Zinke on the Friday episode. I mean, is this a situation where McKenzie can actually stick in the rotation? I mean, I wish I could answer that, uh, but we can't, right? We don't know what they're going to do with uh, with Clevenger and with Plesac. I mean, I think it's silly to think that Clevenger and Plesac are going to be down at the alternate site the rest of the year. They're either going to be back with the Indians or traded at some point, and I just have to believe they're going to be back with the Indians. Uh, they, uh, the, This organization, the players on it, have every right to be very upset with what Plesac and Clevenger did and with the way they handled the consequences of their actions. Absolutely. But ultimately, they're still two very good pitchers. Clevenger, we could be talking about you know, a Cy Young winner one of these days. And I just can't imagine the Indians are going to just give them up because of what they did. And I don't think they're going to be able to find any sort of fair value on the trade market for either of those guys in this abbreviated season. So I would bet on them being back with the Indians. Now, having said that, I think with what McKenzie showed us in that start against the Tigers and with the sort of pitcher that he looks like he could be, he's still worth taking a gamble on in fab this week. Um, How much of a gamble? I don't think you want to go too high on him just because of the very real possibility that he makes one more start and then is out of the rotation. Uh, But I do think that it's... uh, a move that I'm comfortable making because of what the ceiling is. Again, I mean, Tristan McKenzie could be, you know, I said Casey Mize is probably the best pitcher that we've seen, uh, that we will see on Fab the rest of the season. Tristan McKenzie could be one of the five best pitchers that we see. And just that opportunity, that chance makes him someone who I like to go after uh, this weekend, even knowing what the risks could be that we could be seeing uh, Plesak and Clevenger back very soon. Yeah, there's a service time component to the demotions right. of Plezak and Clevenger as well. So that complicates matters even further. Are they holding them down at the alternate site just to get that extra service time? I mean, that's a it's a pretty harsh penalty. I realize what these guys did was bad, especially given the elevated risk of a few key members of, of that team and people around that team. That's obviously a, a big deal, but... I have no idea how it's going to play out. I keep looking at it and just saying, I think they want to win, and I think they've got their point across, so they should bring those guys back up based on that logic. But I wasn't in the room when they tried to apologize to their teammates. You know, I don't know how how deep that decision, those decisions were, and just how much that really kind of burned bridges, I guess, in that clubhouse. So. To be determined, but I think Tristan McKenzie has a case to be the second best pitcher of this bunch because yeah. the strikeout stuff looks legit. I think the command's further along than it is with Scooble. And initially, I had a lower bid on McKenzie in the article, but I think I would bid at least as much on McKenzie as Scooble. So I think we're looking at more like 8 to 10% of a budget with a nudge for a little bit more. As you mentioned before, if you have either major injuries in your pitching or you've been chasing it all season long, you might as well be aggressive. You might as well go to 12 or 15% because there's just not going to be enough talent to spend that money on later. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. This is the time to spend the money because we're just not going to see guys like this come around the rest of the season. Let's talk about Sixto Sanchez for a moment. And this is a bit like the McKenzie situation, just in that he pitched very well at A when we last saw him. That was last season, a 253 ERA, 103 whip, over 103 innings, a low walk rate, a good home run rate. And he could run the fastball up to triple digits. And reading a little bit more about Sanchez, part of the issue is that it doesn't have ideal movement to get whiffs. So that's where the strikeout rate comes down a little lower than you'd expect. But if you look at prospects who were 21 or younger at AA and above last season, only two had a better K-BB percentage than Sixto Sanchez did last year. That was Matt Manning and Davey Garcia. And that group includes guys like Dustin May, Ian Anderson, and Brewster Gratterall. So I think it's safe to say Sixto Sanchez can be a very good big league pitcher. Maybe the ace ceiling 
depends on some changes to that arsenal, some tweaks with the fastball. Uh, coming away from his debut, I think he's the guy versus Scooble. That's the more even sort of question now. Like Sanchez versus Scooble for the rest of the season, who do you actually like better? Still for the rest of the season, I, I prefer Scooble over Sanchez, but I agree with you that that's the, uh, that's the better comparison. That's the fairer comparison. Mize is, I think, head and shoulders above all the guys we've talked about here. And then everyone else is, to steal a phrase from uh, Fred Zinke on Friday show, keep them honest bids that I'm going with uh, with uh, the rest of them. Uh, I do think that I would still prefer to go after Scooble than Sanchez, but... That strikeout stuff is there, and that uh, that number you just pulled out, the K-minus walk rate uh, that Sanchez showed last season, didn't know that. That's a very impressive. Um, that's a very impressive company that he's keeping, and I think that's a really good stat to keep in mind for any pitcher, certainly, and even more so for young pitchers. It shows you an ability to attack the strike zone, uh, an ability to miss bats in the strike zone. Uh, that is something I think is very important for youngsters. It's the sort of skill that once you have it, I'm not sure if you ever lose it. Maybe it uh, takes a little bit of a step back when you take a step up in competition, but that is all about uh, being able to control your stuff, being able to harness your stuff, and understanding how to attack the strike zone, and that is something that really doesn't matter what level you're at. You're going to be able to do that, so I really like to hear that stat for Sanchez. He's still in that range, though. We're talking about taking a pretty big step down from Casey Mize uh, to the rest of these guys, and I think that's where Sanchez ends up fitting in this weekend. Yeah, so I think you're still looking at probably close to 10% of your budget in most leagues on a guy like Sanchez. I would go Sanchez over Scooble because of that K-BB, that approach. I think as much as I love strikeouts, and Scooble absolutely might provide that right away, you might get early career Robbie Ray. You might get a high fours ERA, a bad whip, and then well over a strikeout per inning while he figures it out. And if you're already really strong in ratios, or if you're just trying to make up ground in ratios, you can be more aggressive. You can take more chances in certain situations. But I think when you have more of a balanced pitching staff, I do think Sixto Sanchez fits a little bit better in the short term than Tarek Skubal does. Again, four pitchers that I really like long-term. I think we'll be watching these guys in the big leagues for years to come. Uh, Dane Dunning was sent down after he debuted this week, so I I wrote him up as an AL-only stash. I think he's more of a watch list guy. Part of the issue there is that Reynaldo Lopez came off the IL, so they don't need a fifth starter right now. If anyone gets hurt, I think Dunning gets another chance, but He's more of a streamer in the short term for mixed leagues than someone that you want to hold on to for the next couple of weeks. Let's take a look at bullpens for a minute because there's a lot of activity there, and then we'll take a look at some possible streamers. Matt Barnes appears to be the new closer for the Red Sox. I think the only lingering concern there is he also might be on his way out the door. The Red Sox traded Brandon Workman and Heath Hembree to the Phillies on Friday. It was Barnes who got the save opportunity that night against the Orioles, and he's Always been interesting because of his strikeout rate. I mean, that's been part of Matt Barnes for the last couple of seasons as kind of a possible closer or even a staff filler in a lot of leagues. But is he going to be on this team when the trade deadline passes one week from today? Because if you bid too aggressively, you might be buying a guy who's only going to get you two or three saves at most before he's setting up somewhere else. Yeah, it's something you have to definitely be thinking about here this uh, this next week. I still think he's worth going after. Um, I would still rather bet on him remaining the closer in Boston. It just feels more likely, right? It's just more likely that a guy doesn't get traded than gets traded at this stage. So I would still make a move for him, but I would probably take a couple of percentage points off of the bid than if we knew he was for sure locked in in Boston the rest of the season. Very hard to chase saves as we've talked about this year, but Barnes with that strikeout profile, with the fact that there just really aren't very many other options in the Boston bullpen at this point, uh, it feels as though if he does remain in Boston, he will for sure be this team's closer the rest of the way. And that's something that we haven't been able to say about guys who have elevated to the ninth inning role at certain points this season. That makes him feel a little bit more comfortable, even though you know that there's a possibility he gets traded in the next week. Yeah, I had him at a 7-10% to max in a 15-team league, 5-7% to in a 12-teamer, and a little bit less. I think he's viable in a 10-team league as long as he's the guy. Definitely, so yeah. like a first-come, first-serve a smaller league, he should be picked up if he hasn't been picked up already. I think in a mono league, you can be a little more aggressive because the Ks are going to be there regardless if he gets traded or not, as long as getting traded across leagues doesn't remove him from your player pool. Uh, a bad rule, by the way. I know that's kind of an old, traditional, you know, how-to-play rotisserie baseball sort of rule, but 
if you're playing in an AL or NL only league and a player gets traded across leagues midseason, you shouldn't lose that player. That's just ridiculous. I think that was one of the few things that the old founding fathers got wrong when they put our fantastic little game together. Uh, let's talk about the Phillies, though, for a second, because with Brandon Workman getting traded there, Hector Neris is now a closer in waiting or a setup guy, and he pitched the eighth on Saturday. Brandon Workman came in and blew the save on Saturday. So is Neris a drop? Is Neris a hold? Like, what's the plan here in this bullpen? Do you think Neris is like a, like a tiny bit sneaky happy that that happened? Right? Like this new guy comes in and takes his job and flubs it right away. Like just a little part of him maybe had a little chuckle at it. I don't know. I don't know. I can't say that I wouldn't if I was in his position. I think Nearest is a hold for now because there's no guarantee that this goes the way that the Phillies envision it going after making this trade. Um, if, uh, you know, a week passes and Workman starts to right the ship, then you can let him go. But right now, I'm not letting Nearest go. I would still be holding on for a couple of days just to see how this all shakes out, what happens over the next week. And hey, maybe Nearest ends up getting traded to a place where he actually is used as the closer, right? I mean, he has proved himself a viable closer. Nearest we could see Hector Nearest getting traded to be a closer. I think if Matt Barnes gets traded, it'll almost certainly be to be a setup man. But Nearest could certainly get traded to a team that is comfortable turning him right into their closer. So I'm holding on to him at least through the trade deadline. Yeah, one more week, I guess, for him. He's been amazingly bad so far this season. The walk rate off the mm -hmm. charts high. Uh, just I didn't see this coming at all. I thought he was one of those guys who was kind of a fringe top 10 closer who was actually going to be pretty good from that tier, and it's been a mess to this point. So I'm with the hold for now. I don't think Workman's track record is long enough where you can look at him and say he's absolutely the guy that could yes. easily switch back. He could be the seventh or eighth inning guy, and it still it boosts Philadelphia's bullpen regardless of which role he's pitching in. Uh, Padres are part of this conversation for the second straight week because Drew Pomeranz is down with a shoulder injury. Emilio Pagan looks like the guy and ordinarily, Pagan is rosterable in deeper mixed leagues anyway, just because the ratios are good, misses plenty of bats. He hasn't quite been himself this season either. I think it's a small sample. We're still talking about 12 innings, so I'm not too concerned. The swinging strike rate's down to career low 10.8%. Walk rate up through the roof right now. I don't. I think I'm still bidding on him. I just think I'm bidding on him expecting this to be a very temporary solution that maybe only lasts a week or two. Yeah, it's been a really strange season for uh, Emilio Pagan. I'm in a league, I've talked about it a few times on this show, uh, where we use saves plus holds, and I took him probably as like the 15th or 16th reliever. There are plenty of closers on the board, um, but I thought he was the best just pure reliever who was going to get plenty of holds. Obviously has not been himself, just 10 strikeouts in those uh, uh, 12 innings that you mentioned, DVR, but uh, still uh, he, he looks like he should be the, the closer uh, for this team, at least in the short term. Got the save against uh, the Astros over the weekend. Uh, clean inning, one walk, but uh, no hits, no strikeouts, unfortunately in that inning, but uh, we've seen we've seen some decent outings from him over the last uh, week, 10 days or so here, so hopefully riding the ship. Um, I think I would, I would still probably come in under Matt Barnes just because I feel like Barnes has a better chance of being a long-term closer for the rest of the season than Pagan does, but just barely a hair under Barnes is where I'd be coming in on Pagan for this weekend. Yeah, I think so. Uh, I think the other interesting thing here is that Cal Quantrill has been working in short relief and I think that maybe puts him kind of in the mix as the fallback option. Luis mm -hmm. Patino looks like he's going to piggyback with Adrian Morejone. Uh, I didn't bring up Morejone in the starter conversation because as I was looking at the schedule, I realized he's at Colorado for his next turn. So even if he's more stretched out coming out of his appearance on Sunday, I don't want any of that. I think we could be talking about him <laughs> next week, maybe going into Oakland. But even there, I don't know if I want to throw a young lefty going up against that A's lineup on the road either. So it's a rough stretch of schedule, especially this week for Morejon. Uh, but do keep that in mind. There are a few Padres bats. We'll get to some bats in a little while who are available in a decent number of leagues. They'll have a few games in Colorado next weekend that you do want to take advantage of. Uh, Luis Patino, if he, if he were going short, I think he could be an option. I mean, he's mm -hmm. only maxed out at two innings in his five appearances. So 
it's up in the air at this point as far as how exactly they're going to use him. He's been throwing a ton of pitches, though, so I think they could use him for two or three innings at a time if they uh, think that's the better way to continue his development. And frankly, I think that makes more sense. Like, maximize the number of innings you get from him. Don't worry about him trying to finish out games if you feel confident in Pagan, Quanchel, or whoever it might be. So if you wanted to throw, you know, the 5 7% bid, whatever it is, at Pagan, and then put Quantrill in as a min bid at the bottom of that same list, I don't hate that at all because I think it's close enough where Quantrill could quietly emerge as the guy. Yeah, I think that's a smart plan of attack, definitely. I still like it just feels like it's gonna have to be Pagan, um, to but uh, but it does seem like a nice way to back up what you're doing, um, if you end up uh, missing out on Pagan to grab Quantrill and see how this week plays out for this team. Pirates also uh Strong uh, return to this space with uh, Keone Kella day to day with a return. forearm issue. Yeah, they're they're back again. <laughs> I don't like this bullpen at all. I think there's one reliever beyond Kella who I believe in, and it's Richard Rodriguez. And what's different about him this year is he's throwing his slider more than he's ever thrown it in Pittsburgh. It's almost a 65-35 split now, uh, where the fastball and slider are working together. And I think that's the only way I trust him enough to even roster him. But their lack of good relievers should make Richard Rodriguez the guy if Kella's forced to miss time. Now, as of 11 a.m. Eastern on Sunday, Kella hasn't been placed on the IL yet, but he walked off with an arm injury in, I think, his second or third appearance back from the injured list. So I think you can actually throw a low bid on, Rod- on Rodriguez even if we don't have a, an IL move for Kella today. Five pitches, leaves, forearm tightness. Forearm tightness is never a word you want to hear, right? Forearm tightness almost always is a precursor to something much larger. Uh, it's always a bad sign. It Very rarely does a pitcher get uh, first sidelined with forearm tightness, and then it's just, oh, yeah, it was, it was just forearm tightness the whole time. He's fine. Don't see that. I actually dropped Keone Kila in a daily league this morning. I felt totally comfortable making that move because – even if he does, he's going to miss some time. And even if he does come back, we're not exactly sure when it's going to be, what sort of role he's going to be in when he does come back, what sort of fitness level that arm is going to be at. I wouldn't be surprised if we have seen the last of Keone Kila in this 2020 season. That's my own speculation. That's my own uh, ruminations. But I feel like that could be something that ends up being the case. And with everything you said, I agree. Richard Rodriguez feeling like someone who could hold on to this closer's job the rest of the season. There's just nowhere to turn if Kila is injured in that Pittsburgh bullpen it's really Rodriguez and a whole bunch of guys who I can't imagine Derek Shelton wanting to turn to in the ninth inning so this is a spot where a guy who maybe would only be closing on one out of 30 teams happens to be on the one where he will be closing yeah hey it's good to be in the right place at the right time Uh, as far as streamers go this is an ugly group this week the injury to Steven Strasburg opens up a spot for Eric Fetty at first glance you think oh yeah former first round pick mid twos ERA, maybe I'll take a flyer. He's got a two-start week. He's got the Phillies at home. He's got the Red Sox on the road. And you look and you see the 1.53 whip. You see five strikeouts in 17 and two-thirds innings. There's <laughs> no way that's a good idea, right? I mean, like that's a bottom of the barrel, like pure desperation. If you are almost last in both ratios categories and you're just chasing wins and Ks at this point, sure, throw a little bit on Eric Fetty, but... I don't think I could recommend them to anybody who's competing in the ratios categories. No way. I mean, at some point, a pitcher just is who he is, and all the great matchups in the world and all the opportunity in the world isn't going to change that. Five strikeouts in 17 and two-thirds innings uh, just tells you exactly what sort of pitcher Eric Fetty is, and uh, I'm with you, Derek. Uh, I think it's exactly right if it's if you are basically out of it or can't get any worse in your ratios then sure, why the hell not? But other than that, that's really the only spot where you're going to find use for Eric Fetty this week. Maybe you'll get lucky. I think Taylor Rourke has a two-start week lined up. It's the Rays on the road on Monday and then a Saturday start at home against the Orioles. I actually would trust Roark in that spot, even if I were trying to compete in ratios. And I say this as somebody who got completely destroyed by Jordan Lyle's two-start week in a couple of leagues. <laughs> uh, saw a note on Rotowire this morning that he might be tipping pitches, so that always makes you feel good. When it's his you, fault. Uh, it's not your fault. Yeah, it's his fault. It's, it's his <laughs> fault that I look past all of the problems, all the flaws, and just saw what I wanted to see. But that's exactly what you want. You want your guy who you pick up with minimal confidence in a two-star week to tip pitches in both of his starts and just get yeah. completely smashed. So 
Sorry for the recommendation. If anybody followed that one, it did not go well for me either. I, I lived that one, uh, and I saw the line scroll by last night. It was like, this is going to be a two-beer night. I'm going to have to go find <laughs> something else in this garage because this is this is not going to work. Uh, other pitchers people are going to be thinking about, Jonathan Loisega is probably back in the mix for the Yankees. The problem here is the usage hasn't been enough for him to really make a dent as a starter. If he's used as a follower, the situation gets better. But the innings aren't going to be there. So you're talking about a guy who early in the year was maxing out at three innings in his appearances. He's gone less than two in each of his last two appearances. Do you have any interest in Loisega knowing you're going to have to wait a little while for him to even become eligible for wins if they continue to use him as a traditional starter? I don't think so. It's just it's too much of a waiting game. And the problem with the waiting game in this way, and we've hinted at it with other people, we've talked about it in other shows, is you don't know what comes at the end of the waiting game, right? You're gonna you know for sure you're gonna have to wait for him to get a little bit stretched out. And what you're waiting for, him to be stretched out enough to be winning games for this Yankees team, might not ever happen. And if it does happen, it could happen with one week left in the season. So all of those factors just make him too risky of a pickup, even at a min price. It's just really, you're not getting anything out of it. Yeah, scrolling through, there's not much out there otherwise for streaming opportunities. You might find Brett Anderson as a two-start guy. I'd be cool. very careful there. It's uh, <laughs> He's good in spots where you don't expect him to be good, and he gets knocked around a lot in spots where he should be good. Uh, I can't figure out. Brett Anderson really at all at this point. There are plenty of great hitters to talk about this week, so we'll get to those in just a second. All right, Bella, let's talk about these bats this week. We've got a nice group of prospects that have joined the big league ranks. We talked about Joey Bart a lot with Fred Zinke on Friday. Aggressive bidding makes all the sense in the world, and one of the catchers who I landed on that I would actually consider dropping for Joey Bart at this point is a guy that I liked a ton coming to the season. He was an easy top 10 catcher for me, and it's Omar Narvaez for the Brewers. Narvaez has been a huge disappointment, and I think the bigger concern, really with any player who's underperforming in limited runs so far this season, is when playing time shifts. He's basically in a timeshare now with Manny Pena. I don't want a timeshare catcher if I can help it. And we know Joey Bart's going to play a lot because the Giants want him to maximize the number of plate appearances he gets. He's going to hit higher in the order than most other catchers. He has power that's legit. I continue to throw this one bit of caution out there. I don't think the batting average will be nearly as good as what we saw at Double I think that was kind of an outlier sort of performance for him, at least in the short term. But most catchers are low average guys and they offer occasional power. Bart is better than that. He has a good eye at the plate. He's already a good defender. Everything is good here. I don't I don't mean to bring up the batting average thing to try and, and pull the guy down. I'm just throwing it out there to let people know that I don't think he's JT Realmuto. You know, I think he's more of your like a like a Sal Perez type in the short term who might bring the average up enough to possibly be a top seventy five, top eighty fantasy player at his peak. Yeah, I think that he could be a top 10 catcher the rest of the way. I mean, it just feels as though everything's lined up for him this season to be that, and that includes some underperforming catchers who we thought were going to be in that top 10 mix, Omar Narvaez, chief among them. I actually have already made that exact move, dropping Omar Narvaez for Joey Bart in one league where I was already able to make the move. Uh, I just can't uh, believe what has uh, gone down with Narvaez this season, the playing time loss. You are absolutely on the money. That is the final nail in the coffin now that he is in that pure timeshare with Manny Pena. We talked a lot about Bart on Friday, as you said. Uh, this is an easy pickup, uh, probably even going back to the pitchers if I'm just uh, position agnostic on the uh, fab this weekend. Maybe Casey Mize is someone I like better than Joey Bart, but that's probably the only person. Maybe one of the closers we talked about if I really need saves, uh, but it would have to take something like that. Otherwise, Joey Bart, easy, the number one player for me this weekend. Yeah, I think Mize and Bart will be at the top of my list as well. Similar bids on both, really. And, and there are situations like the one Fred described where maybe you're just good at catcher. you got two top 10 guys already. You don't really have to bid much. And that's fine. Just throw the yeah. keep them honest bid in there and let somebody else spend their fab and save your fab for pitching or whatever it is you actually need at this point. Uh, Ryan Mountcastle got the call from the Orioles. I think he's pretty interesting just because he's probably a better fantasy player than he is a real-life player. Defensively, didn't really fit on the left side of the infield. Uh, doesn't draw a ton of walks. Never really has in the minor leagues. 
but doesn't strike out a lot either, and he makes a lot of hard contact. So he kind of reminds me of Chris Davis in Oakland in terms of his approach. Uh, so he's a righty. He's in a hitter-friendly environment. There's really no one pushing him for playing time. How good can Ryan Mountcastle be from the jump? Because he came into this season really with nothing left to prove at AAA. As a 22-year-old last year, had a career-best 25 home runs, had a 117 WRC+, and he's pretty consistently been... 17, 20% better than league average everywhere he's played with even a better mark than that at high A. So a nice track record as a hitter and landing on a team where he's got plenty of opportunity. Such an easy guy to get on board with the rest of this season, right? I mean, going to play every day, power's there, no one's really going to be pushing him. Good minor league track record. You mentioned uh, the 25 homers last year that came with a 312, 344, 527 line. The year before at AA, 297, 341, 464. That was with uh, 13 homers, 19 doubles as a 21-year-old. We see him growing into his power. I mean, every single box is being checked here. And we know there are flaws, and we know there are fleas. There are going to be for him, not only this season, but throughout his career. But such an easy guy to like. And what I like about him as a youngster, as someone you're going after on Fab, is you pretty much know exactly what you are going after here. Like, there's a very straight line to, I need power, Ryan Mountcastle can give it to me. I need someone to fill a corner infield spot every single week, Ryan Mountcastle can do that for me. You really like that certainty when you are making a Fab bid on a player who is just getting his feet wet in the majors. Very easy guy to like. Again, position agnostic, probably my third favorite player, assuming I don't need closers behind Mize and Bart this week. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think the key thing that makes him stand out compared to a lot of players that we use as corner infielders in deeper mixed leagues is a lot of those guys end up sitting against lefties, right? They're big side platoon mashers, or they have a flaw, they strike out too much. Mountcastle doesn't really have the same flaws, and I think playing time is really important right now. Mm-hmm. If you're trying to make up ground or just trying to keep a lead, keeping those counting stats where they are is going to be really important. So definitely on board with you that Mountcastle behind Bart, number two hitter on the board this week, and the role is a, a huge part of the reason for that. I think it really gets interesting after those two guys. I think you could prioritize the rest of the hitters we're going to talk about in almost any order. Uh, Isak Paredes had not heard that pronunciation before, but that does make more sense from you know a Spanish-speaking yeah, name. Uh, Isak Paredes, as I've heard this week, uh, started five of the last six games entering Sunday. Stuck in the bottom of the batting order for now. Young for the level everywhere he's been in the minor leagues. Doesn't strike out. He does draw walks. Has a little bit of power. And we talked about Willie Castro, I think, on last week's show. But I think with Paredes... We're looking at a guy who has a higher floor right away. The hit tool is kind of like command for a pitcher in terms of its importance, where if you go up there and you control the zone well, put a lot of balls in play, good things can happen. Uh, The areas where he doesn't grade out very favorably is speed. He's a 30-grade runner, which is uh, amazing for someone that young to be that low on on that scale. Uh, (laughs) Not necessarily a good defender. He's kind of just below average there. But... He does the things we want as fantasy players. He hits, and he's going to hit more over time because there's more raw power that he's going to tap into. I don't think they're going to mess around with his playing time all that much. You don't call a guy that age up to the big leagues and make him a part-time player. I think it's one day a week off at most. And while it might seem like bad news for Willie Castro, I think it could be bad news for Nico Goodrum because Goodrum's off to a slow start. The trade deadline's approaching. There's at least a chance that there's a contending team that sees him as an upgrade for their bench because he can play all over the place. So I'd be surprised if we get to our show next week, if Nico Goodrum is still playing every day and still a Tiger, I think that's a little bit of an upset. Yeah, I think you're totally right there. I think that this is a this is a team that wants to get the youngsters involved. This is a team that should be using 2020 as almost a laboratory season and seeing who they've got and what they've got and getting ready for 2021 and the years beyond where they could you know start to round back into form and be a contending team. And everything you mentioned about Paredes uh, is really is really right on the money. I think the biggest thing you said there was the hit tool. I think that's exactly the right way to think about hit tool command. Those are the things that you're going to carry those through your entire career. You can command 
command a zone uh, when you're 8, 18, 28. That is great. Same thing with the hit tool. Like if you if it, if you can stick, if you can make, uh, if you have bat to ball skills, if you can have a good understanding of where the strike zone is and what you do need to attack and what you can lay off of, that's something that no matter the pitcher, you're going to be able to bring into every single plate appearance, and that is huge, huge huge for a youngster even if you know that the hitting ceiling maybe down the line is a little bit capped uh, if you have that right from the jump you have a whole lot going for you so I really like uh, that that skill that Paredes brings and again playing time so so huge this season he is going to have that for sure next guy I want to talk about is not somebody I expected to discuss at all for mixed leagues but the more I look at the numbers the more I'm impressed it's Brad Miller Right now, he's third base eligible only in most leagues. He has played a little bit at shortstop with Paul DeYoung on the COVID IL. I don't think DeYoung's that far away from returning, but Brad Miller's out hitting Matt Carpenter and Tommy Edmond, and he's been playing basically every day for a team that has a lot of games left to play. So with Miller, the thing that really stood out to me, I looked at the stat cast numbers, he's got a multi-year track record of hitting the ball very hard. His average exit velocity the last three seasons has been 91.1, 92.6 and 92.8 in the last three seasons, respectively. He's only 30 years old. For some reason in my mind, he was like 34 or 35. And he was really productive last year in a part-time role. He had 13 homers and just 170 plate appearances split between two teams. All that said, the conclusion I had in the article is that maybe it's fair to wonder that Brad Miller, who had that 30 home run season back in 2016, like maybe that's less of an outlier than we previously thought. It really might be. It really might be DVR. And as you said, with the way he's hitting, um, this is a team that, you know, even with their the fact that they've played so few games compared with the rest of the league this season, so it's a little bit harder to evaluate them. Uh, they were a team that had a lot of offensive questions coming into the year. And the fact that he has hit as, hit as well as he has uh, through 30 plate appearances to me says that he has to have a role in this offense. He has to have basically an everyday role for this team, even when they are back at full strength, even when Paul DeYoung comes back from the COVID IL. Have to imagine that Brad Miller has to find a spot. Uh, maybe becomes a, even a little easier with that DH spot. Um, but uh, no matter where it is, third base, probably not a ton of shortstop after DeYoung comes back, DH, whatever it is, this is not a team that can afford to have Brad Miller's bat in there only part of the time. Um, even as short of a sample as this has been, you have to assume, you have to feel pretty comfortable saying that he's one of the three or four best hitters in this lineup on a day-to-day -day basis, and you just can't push that guy out just because he wasn't initially in your everyday plan. So I understand your hesitancy to include him, but I think he's going to be in there mostly every day for the Cardinals. And, you know, not to beat a dead horse, but playing time is huge in this 2020 season. And as you mentioned, this team has a lot of games ahead of it the rest of the way. Yeah, 10 to 12 more games than pretty much every other team in the league because of the amount of time they missed uh, while being shut down by COVID. Interest rates have hit record lows, which means it's a great time to refinance your student loans and see if you can lower your monthly payment. If you've been making the same monthly payment on your student loans for the last couple of years, odds are you could reduce your payment and save by refinancing with earnest. Even if you've refinanced before with today's low-rate environment, most people could save by refinancing again. Checking your new rate is fast and easy. To start, complete a few questions online, it only takes two minutes, and you'll get a personalized rate estimate without affecting your credit score. Want to change your monthly payment, combine many loans into one easy payment, or get a better rate? Earnest makes it easy. Plus, there are no origination fees or any other fees. And the internet loves Earnest customer service. They're rated 9.4 out of 10 on Trustpilot. And now you can get a $100 cash bonus when you refinance a student loan with earnest.com slash fantasy. Once again, you get a $100 cash bonus when you refi your student loan at earnest.com slash fantasy. Not available in all states. Visit earnest.com slash fantasy for more details. Terms and conditions apply. All right, the rest of the hitters we're going to talk about are, I think, a little bit less interesting, but they are playing more than expected. And I think that's the key behind this part of the conversation. Abraham Toro is currently playing a lot for the Astros because they've got a few injuries. Uh, Alex Bregman, most recently, went on the IL. Toro was already kind of moving around as a utility guy and getting a couple starts per week even before that happened. But he's settling in as a temporary, pretty much everyday guy. He started six of the last seven games, entering play on Sunday, moved up and actually hit fifth in the order on Friday night. Toro hasn't done much with the playing time yet in the big leagues, Beller, but 
The minor league track record was really good, especially in the upper levels. He was a featured prospect of the week on an episode of Rates and Barrels last year because the plate skills were good. He was hitting the ball in the air more than ever, and he was rewarding those who drafted him in keeper and dynasty leagues with a lot more power. So he looked like a guy that was really a breakout player in 2019. The comps to Marwin Gonzalez are sort of inevitable because he's a switch hitter with the Astros who can play all over the infield. Toro looks like he's got more to bring to the plate in the long run, so I think that's what makes him more interesting. The problem I think you're going to run into is that once Bregman's healthy, he's going to fall back into that part-time role again. So I think that's what tempers the bids. Really, you're bidding for a week in which Alex Bregman's probably not going to play. And then at the end of the week, you're probably thinking about letting Toro go. Exactly. I mean, it's exactly the point right there. So so you're basically hoping to catch lightning in a bottle for one week here. Um, We know what the skills are. We know he's going to play this entire week. um, And then... We don't expect Bregman's injury to be keeping him out much longer than the minimum, if it's any longer than that. So got to think that Toro, again, reverts to being a part-time player and just not enough here uh, for him to remain on even deep league fantasy rosters uh, once Bregman is back and he is back to being a part-time player. I think we'll be talking about him as a potentially interesting guy in 2021 because of that versatility and because of the fact that he's going to bring multi-position eligibility to the table. Could be an interesting guy. Could be a David Fletcher-esque sort of player from a fantasy perspective. Not the same sort of skill set exactly, but have that same ability to move around, play multiple spots, keep in the lineup because of his ability to do that and give your fantasy roster a bunch of flexibility. But this week it is a tiny bid and maybe it's even one uh, where you have to be in a unique spot. Maybe you have been leaning on Robinson Cano, let's just say, for example, and with the uncertainty with the Mets and their return to play uh, because of their COVID outbreak, it could be a situation where someone like Toro becomes a little bit more attractive to you this week. Yeah, I'm right there with you. Seven games at home for the Astros, though, so pretty much a maxed out schedule with the exception of teams that have double headers to make up mm-hmm. for Houston. The other player who I'm interested in, but now I think I have to dial it back, mostly to AL only leagues, is Taylor Jones. Uh, Michael Brantley came back from the IL on Sunday morning, so I would assume Brantley is going to DH a lot. Jordan Alvarez, of course, out for the season after knee surgery. Brantley probably DHs. We see Tucker and Reddick in the corners, Springer in center, and Jones gets squeezed unless they do something with Yuli Gurriel and move him around defensively, but that doesn't seem like the Astros' first choice, at least. Uh, But Taylor Jones, if you're in an AL-only league where anybody getting at bats is worth picking up, I think he offers big power. He's shown patience at the plate, doesn't strike out a ton. The hard hit rates look really good. He's the kind of guy that could just be one of those late bloomers. He actually pitched until his second year of college, and then he started becoming a position player and, and hitting regularly. So he's not as old in terms of baseball development as his actual age. So I would keep that in mind. I think for keeper in dynasty leagues as well, even if he's not going to play a lot in the short term, He's a pretty interesting guy to go ahead and scoop up now and just sort of see what happens. Players like this sometimes get traded at the deadline and end up in much better situations, too. They can be secondary or tertiary pieces in, in big trades, and I think it would make a lot of sense if he ended up uh, getting a chance to start somewhere by the end of this season. Uh, speaking of playing time, Dexter Fowler. Uh, playing a ton in St. Louis, and I don't like him at all for skills purposes. <laughs> like, he's... He's clearly going the wrong way. I, I, when I put him in the column, I was like, I don't even know if I can include him. And here's the problem. The early skills trends are bad, including a 83.5 mile per hour average exit velocity, which is a career low, a career worst strikeout percentage. But eight games this week, and it includes series against the Royals and Pirates. And if Dexter Fowler is going to play six or seven or possibly all eight of those games, At-bats are huge because you're going to find runs, you're going to find RBIs, you might find a home run along the way. I think he's a a one-week sort of pickup, and if you can get him for a minimum bid, you're actually doing well because there's so many injuries right now that you've got a lot of platoons and part-time situations in the player pool. You know what you like about Dexter Fowler in this situation, too, is that, remember last week you made the good point about you know, the, the double headers are great, but they're also seven inning double headers. So you have to assume one fewer plate appearance per batter. And then, you know, maybe you don't play both ends of the double header either. So it might not seem as obviously good as a double header is in normal times. 
But Dexter Fowler, even at 34 years old, even with the skills deterioration, still a very effective uh, outfielder, no matter where the Cardinals play him. Still a good defender, still a good glove. So he's not going to be subbed out. You know, He's not going to get two plate appearances and then be a defensive replacement uh, late in a seven-inning doubleheader. So that's nice for him. He, I think, is at less of a risk of losing late-game doubleheader plate appearances than a lot of guys would be. So I think we can give him the full doubleheader bump, the full eight-game bump. Probably not going to play all eight, but I bet he plays seven out of eight and plays the full seven out of those eight games, maybe six out of eight. Either way, you're going to get a lot of playing time from him. Another guy, like you said, with Toro, a one-week ad. You see what you get out of him. You cross your fingers and hope for the best, and then you don't have any compunction about dropping him next week. The other playing time sources in the outfield to think about this week, Jake Cave, because of Byron Buxton's injury, he'll play a lot, at least on the big side of platoon for the Twins. Underlying numbers last year were better than people realized. They kind of supported the power that he was showing. and He could draw walks, so he could actually do a little bit of damage in the bottom of that Minnesota order. And then Christian Pache, uh, because Ronald Acuna was placed on the IL, the Braves finally called up Pache. Defensively, he's ready to play in the big leagues. I think he could bump Ender Inciarte into a part-time role once Acuna comes back. We talked about him a bit last week. He's going to hit in the bottom of the order, though, Beller. I just think he is purely a filler for playing time in the short term, even though there's definitely some keeper in Dynasty League appeal, and there has been for a long time. He's probably rostered in a lot of those leagues. Yeah, yeah, I think that's totally right. I would like to see him bump Ender Inziarte into a part-time role when Acuna does come back. And the Braves are one of these teams who you know, are not purely, obviously, a developmental team, like the way we talk about with uh, the Tigers we were just talking about, getting their youngsters in, seeing what they can do for 2021. Obviously, the Braves have realistic World Series hopes for this 2020 season. But at the same time, Pache could be a guy for them next year. And I think that because of all the other parts they have there – they don't necessarily need their no doubt about it, A+. plus. This is our best nine for sure, no question, out there every single game. I think they can, even if they think in their heads that Pache is a little bit of a step back from someone who could be playing in his place, that there's enough there that they are still putting out a very good lineup and then getting this youngster some really important reps early on in his career and not just shunting him to the bench every single game when Acuna comes back. So I think there's going to be a little bit more long-term playing time available to him than we would assume for a young guy on a contending team, but still probably just that filler guy that you're looking for right now. I wonder if Ender's going to get traded. I mean, I think that's at least a possibility, too. Like, there's there's no guarantee that they would just hold him through the deadline. They've got Drew sure. Waters at the alternate site as well, so they have plenty mm -hmm. of outfield depth in the organization. Uh, let's talk about a few drops for a moment. I mentioned Omar Narvaez earlier when we were talking about Joey Bart. I mean, he's just been miserable so far. Career-high strikeout rate, a 122-271-143 line in his first 18 games with the Brewers. Longer term... Maybe he makes an impact. You give him a full 162-game season in Milwaukee with the benefits of Miller Park. I think he can get close to some of the numbers we saw from him last year in Seattle, but that's not the season we're living in. So I think you got to make that tough call and, and let him go. But the next two guys are two guys I really liked on draft day also. Justin Upton, who has really fallen into a part-time role, also showing a career-high strikeout rate 36.6% of the time. Uh, never walked less than he has this season. And the average exit velocity this season at 86.9, right in line with last year when he was playing with that bad knee at 87.2. So he's not hitting the ball hard when he connects. He's connecting less than ever, and he's in a part-time role. He started the first 10 games of the season, and it started just 8 of 17 entering play on Saturday. So crazy, crazy drop-off for him. I didn't see a decline like this coming from Justin Upton. I thought he was one of those old, boring veterans who was going to come back and return a lot of value this season. Clearly, with the playing time alone, aside from the skills drop, he's the kind of guy you have to let go if you've been waiting on him in, in most leagues. I really think that you do have to let him go. That 8 of 17 you mentioned coincides pretty closely with the Joe Adele promotion also, and I just don't think there's any hope, realistically, of him returning to being an everyday player with the guys who are going to be everyday players on that team. I just don't think there's any realistic path to Justin Upton being anything more than an every-other-day sort of guy when you combine that with the fact that he just hasn't been hitting the ball at all this season. A pretty easy drop for me. Chris Davis in Oakland is the other guy that the playing time has just fallen off. 14 of the first 27 games for the A's are games that he started, so half. I mean, it's just not even close to what you need in a mixed league. And we're talking about a guy who's lost 
nearly four miles per hour on his average exit velocity. I know Chris Davis is one of those players that when things don't look right, he looks as bad as anybody in the league. And when things are going right, he looks as good as anybody in the league. But just the usage here, too, you can't possibly rely on a UT-only guy who's getting a 50% playing time share, which is really unfortunate because I liked him as Mr. 247 with 40 home run power and lots of great run production for several years. He was a metronome sort of player, and maybe a fresh start somewhere else could get him back on track, but I don't see it happening for him in 2020. Another guy who I just can't see getting back to regular playing time. Obviously, you're going to have Ramon Laureano out there in center every day. Robbie Grossman has been swinging the bat pretty well for this team. Steven Piscotti uh, is delivering on what they expect him to do. And what that means is that you've probably got Mark Canna DHing uh, more often than not. I just don't see a path to uh, to Chris Davis becoming anything more uh, than a, another every other day sort of guy. And that just doesn't get the job done for you this season or really any season. So another guy who uh, we have very good, fond memories of in our recent memory bank, but an easy cut this week. James Paxton, I think, too, just based on the nature of his injury, I don't think he's going to throw for two weeks. I don't have injury optimism with him. I mean, his velocity has been down all season. If you needed that extra nudge to let him go, this is the nudge. Like, just mm-hmm. outside of AL-only leagues, I don't think I'm holding on to James Paxton uh, anywhere at this point other than, you know, keeper in dynasty formats, maybe. All right, let's get to a couple of listener questions before we sign off. Uh, Steve G wants to know, uh, I'm assuming Bass can be cut. He isn't even the lockdown closer at this point, as Jordan Romano seems to have jumped him. Do you agree with Steve G that Anthony Bass can be let go? Yeah, I think that's a pretty safe, uh, pretty safe drop here, and uh, he's not really someone who's going to give you any other uh, stats if he's not giving you the save. So that's a guy who I feel pretty comfortable letting go. Let me just add, while we're on this subject, this is maybe a more risky drop, but I mentioned it earlier. I would be comfortable if I had to make a move and didn't necessarily feel like I had someone uh, that I was able to drop. I think Keone Kella can be part of this discussion too. Yeah, you, you might have to be. I mean, especially if you're going to chase some of the other bullpen situations out there, he might make sense as the guy to let go. Uh, other question came in from Steve G was about the Cubs, actually. What are you doing with Rowan Wick this weekend? Or even Craig Kimbrell where available? I mean, there's a handful of leagues where he was cut. I wrote him up as a drop last week. Pretty frustrated by what I've seen overall. And I know the outings this week looked better. And compared to the other relievers we're talking about, when you Kimbrel's track record and stuff up against most of those guys it's really not even close so that's what that temptation is to hold him or to pick him back up where he's out there but what are you doing with these two guys right now yeah I am holding Wick and adding Kimbrel. Kimbrel has looked very good over his last I think it's four outings now he has looked like the Kimbrel the Cubs always hoped they were getting when they signed him at midseason last year um, that save that he had most recently should be noted was the second game of a doubleheader in which Rowan Wick had pitched in game one so it was unavailable I wouldn't say that I would take that as a sign that Kimbrel is getting the job back uh, Wick did struggle in an outing against the White Sox on Saturday gave up a couple of runs gave up a homer the White Sox are hitting homers off of literally everyone at this point so uh, a little bit concerning but the outing before that he also had a four out save where he struck out three guys so I I still think Rowan Wick is more likely the closer for the Cubs but I wouldn't be surprised if this ended up being a matchup thing or a thing where you know Wick got two save opportunities for every one that Kimbrell got I think both guys have enough strikeout upside enough save upside that they're both worth having on your team right now yeah I mean I think that's the case for the time being and again I wrote up Kimbrell as a drop it's Short season, things could change quickly. Guys start looking better. You have to make quick adjustments. But uh, I'd go pretty small on most bids for what it's worth. I'd try to get them at like 3 to 5% or something. I wouldn't go over the top because there is still some uncertainty about how exactly those opportunities are going to be divvied up. Uh, Dustin writes in, can I take a fab loan to spend on Tristan McKenzie? In all seriousness, <laughs> closer picture is puzzling, especially with possible trades. Yeah, it made me wonder. I mean, the trade deadline I think is – usually at 4 Eastern, if I'm not mistaken. I know it's a week from today. Do we record this episode after the deadline? Because I feel like if we record it before, all we're going to be doing is speculating on things that may or may not happen, whereas if we just jump on or maybe we'll do the the pod in the morning and I'll do a chat or something (laughs) at night. There's got to be some way to work around that deadline because it's it's going to be chaos. It's a week from tomorrow. It's the 31st. Oh, it's Monday. Okay, yeah, that was a, Monday. Yeah, why am I? So, I'm off by a day all the time. <laughs> so we're gonna have, actually, we could have like a pretty crazy 
fab. You know, we talked an hour ago about how this is going to be the last fab week. We could actually be like two weeks from now suddenly have this big fab. If there's a very active trade deadline day, that's two Mondays from now. It's going to be that following Sunday where all the fab fallout happens. So that's going to be something interesting to watch. Um, I will say that if I was looking at any almost any of the closers we talked about in the show versus McKenzie, unless I absolutely needed a closer, McKenzie would be the play 10 times out of 10. Don't care who we're talking about. If I feel decent about where I am reliever-wise, I'm going McKenzie. I think I like all the starters we talked about, the young starters, better than all the closers we talked yeah. about. I mean, yep, yep. ordinarily, if, if Emilio Pagan were pitching well, that would probably change the conversation, but we don't know how long Drew Pomeranz is going to be out. We don't know if, if Cal Quantrill is going to swoop in for some of those opportunities. It's kind of a a mess, as everybody said. I got a, a tweet from uh, one of our listeners. I think it, it was Derek that tweeted at me uh, about Ty Butchery getting a two-inning save. I mean, like, what is happening? Like, I, I know Ty Butchery's the guy, but I just wouldn't have expected a two-inning save from him. I would have thought they would have used some other combination, Robles in front of him, you know, whatever, to split up that workload. So it's been a messy year for closers, but mm-hmm. I don't know if it's that much worse than usual. I just think we're more panicked than usual because of the short nature of this uh, 2020 season. That is going to wrap things up for this episode of the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. You can find Beller on Twitter at mbeller. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. Of course, you can get 40% off a subscription to The Athletic at theathletic.com slash podcast. You can check out the ads and drops column. You can check out all the stuff we write, fantasy baseball, fantasy football, MLB coverage, NFL coverage, every possible league you could want covered, and every team we have for you all under one umbrella. For Michael Beller, I'm Derek Van Riper. We're back with you Wednesday with Under the Radar. 